We're starting book four of the Tanya. And I gotta say, it's a brave move. Because book four of the Tanya and book five, the last two books, are typically uh, neglected in popular study. If you go to Tanya classes around the world, chances are they haven't learned book four. That's right. First and foremost, most people just, just, just don't get to it. Tanya classes drag on and they never get past the first three chapters. But also, much of the um, subject matter gets very intricate and deep and Kabbalistic. So many people just leave it. They study the first three books of the Tanya, and then when it gets to book four, they say, all right, hands off, we're done. And uh, in 1964, when the Tanya was first being translated into English, the Rebbe um, oversaw the project, and he was assigning different chassidim, different followers, to translate different books of the Tanya. And there was a man, some of you might have heard of him, Rabbi Emmanuel Shachet. He lived in Toronto. He was very known for his uh, work against missionaries. He would debate them, and he was a legend. And in his early years, <clears throat> when he was just getting close to Chabad, so the Rebbe called him over in 64 and told him that he wants him to translate book four of the Tanya. They already had the first three taken. He wants him to do book four. He told the Rebbe, no way. He said, it's just, it's too mystical. He never learned Kabbalah. Even if he does understand it, how is he going to get it across into English? And he had a back and forth, him and the Rebbe. And in the end, after about 10, 20 minutes, he agreed to try. And he said that he got so absorbed in his work that he ended up writing a, a, a whole book as an introduction to book four of the Tanya. He, he did the translation, and then he wrote a separate book. You can find it online today. It's called Mystical Concepts in Hasidism. And uh, it, it, it's a stepping stone to, uh, to the topics in this book. So it's, it is brave. It's brave, and we're going to do it with God's help. The story of, uh, of this book and the next book, the last two books of the Tanya, are, are quite interesting. The Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, was an incredibly accomplished man. He did things in one lifetime that uh, others could only hope to do in time. He wrote a code of Jewish law. He composed a sitter. He led thousands of followers, founded the Chabad movement, took care of a whole community in Israel, raising funds for them. And of course, he was a Rebbe. He taught a citizen. He wrote the Tanya that studied centuries later by Jews across the world. The interesting thing was that he never wrote any of his Hasidic discourses. He only spoke them, and he had transcribers. The only exception to this was the Tanya and any letters that he wrote, because letters were handwritten. So the Tanya is all of the written Hasidus that we have from him and his letters. Originally, the Tanya only had two parts. Book one, which is the discipline of Hasidic philosophy, and book two, which is the philosophy of Chabad. Ten years after it was printed in 1796, ten years later, 1806, the Alter Rebbe added the book three on Teshuvah. But that was it. Once he passed away in 1812, his children started searching all around for any handwritten 
Torah they can get from their father. They asked communities, they asked Hasidim, if you ever get a letter from our father, please send it to us. Give us even a copy. And if you don't mind, the original. Because the Alter Rebbe was extremely, extremely precise in his writing. The Rebbe would call the Alter Rebbe's pen, Lashon Hazahav, the golden tongue. The Alter Rebbe's words were extremely exact. He was an incredibly precise man as, as a human. So his, his sons were looking for letters. And it seems like they got their hands on a, on a bunch. And in 1814, two years after the Alter Rebbe passed away, they printed an expanded version of the Tanya. And they wrote in their introduction that you all know the three books of the Tanya, but we're going to add two more. Book four, we're going to call Igeret HaKodesh, the holy letters, because they're a compilation of letters that the Alter Rebbe sent to different communities and individuals over his, over his lifetime. They're not all letters that were sent out. This, this book has 32 letters. 26 out of 32 are actual letters that were sent. The other ones are just kind of mini Hasidic discourses. So book four is a compilation of letters. And book five is, they said, we discovered some notes that the Alter Rebbe wrote to himself in Kabbalistic shorthand while he was preparing book one of the Tanya. While he was writing the original Tanya, he was doing, let's just call it, uh, some cap- like Kabbalistic research. And so he wrote notes just to reconcile different uh, passages in the Zohar that seemed contradictory, deep analysis, and that's book five. And they said, now we're going to bring this to print and it's going to be a new, a new version of the Tanya. And forevermore, that's how, uh, that's how Tanya remained. Why did they put it in the Tanya specifically? So book five is because it's notes on the Tanya. But book four, they said, in many of these letters, the Alter Rebbe references other topics discussed in the Tanya. And there's a principle in the Talmud that says, Torah is sometimes poor in one place and rich in another. Which means sometimes in certain tractates you get a conversation in very short, and you open up another tractate, and there it's much more expanded. So you want to have both so you can compare and contrast. So if we put uh, book four together with the Tanya, now you'll have the whole, the whole package. You'll be able to see certain topics expanded in this book, certain topics expanded in that book, and now we have a wholesome project. By the way, over the centuries since, since then, we've discovered about another 150 letters of the Alter Rebbe uh, just came to light. Many of them actually in recent years with um, the declassification of communist files. Seems like the only thing that the Soviet Union didn't have was a shredder. And they, they couldn't get rid of their, they had such, so many documentations and they found a collection of letters that the Alter Rebbe wrote um, because they, it was part of their buildup of the accusation against Alter Rebbe that he was funding uh, a revolution in Israel, a whole fabricated story, but they, got, they had copies of letters the Alter Rebbe sent, and so in their merit, uh, we now have a bunch more letters of Alter Rebbe that, that was printed in a separate book. But 32 of them are in the Tanya, they, and they make up book four that we're starting. Yeah? Did his kids write commentary on the, on the letters? No. Straight. 
they print it as is. They said, this is our father's writing. We're just, we're just going to print it. They even said that they were so sure that the Alter Rebbe was so precise that if any reader finds a mistake, know that it's a copyist's error. There's no way the Alter Rebbe made a mistake. He was so exact in his writing that uh, any mistake has to be attributed to somebody else. So, so that's, that's what we're embarking on, is, is, is these letters. Different to the previous books of the Tanya, each letter is a self-contained essay. It wasn't written as a chapter book. So book one of the Tanya is 53 chapters. We created a class where each one was self-contained. But I, in, in concept, it's one long read. In book four, it's actually totally independent. Tonight is one letter, next week's another letter. They have nothing to do with each other. Two different conversations. And fascinatingly, they're not arranged chronologically. If you look at the Tanya, there doesn't seem to be rhyme or reason. There's no, doesn't go by the dates, doesn't go by the topics either. The Rebbe once said that this means that uh, Hashem was involved in arranging the order and whatever is first is most important. It's a holy arrangement. It's a godly arrangement, not a human one. Director's cut. Director's cut in the most literal sense of the word. Like, for example, the, the first words, the very first words of the first letter that we're studying tonight is potchin bibracha. We open with a blessing. Dr. Rebbe began, began his letter, we open with a blessing. The Rebbe said, since this is the first words of book four, that means that we always have to open with a blessing. Whenever a Jew talks, he has to open with a blessing. Whenever a Jew meets somebody else, open with a blessing. Why? Because it's the first words. So like in that sense, the first is the most important. Now, the way these letters were written, just historically, the Alter Rebbe wrote them, there was always a practical message. He was writing either to a community or to an individual for, for a practical reason. But his signature style was that he always enriched the message with a mystical idea or insight. And his children, when they printed the Tanya, they deleted the technical elements of the letter. Today, with research, we have the full letter so that each letter gets interesting historical context and I'm gonna to try to share them with you over the, over the weeks. But they, they took out just the parts that were um, study worthy. You know, just, it's like the, uh, imagine a guy gives a speech and then at the end he says, and now we need money. You know, you don't put the fundraising part in, in print. In print, you share his thoughts. So that's what they did. They, they, they just put the, the Kabbalah, the Hasidus, the discourse into print. But there is interesting uh, history to every single one of the letters. And not just physical history, but uh, spiritual context as well. I found today that in 1948, the previous Lubavitch Rebbe, that was father-in-law, was leading a Fabringen on his father's yard site. And he said that we have a tradition from Rebbe to Rebbe. So I heard from my father, or heard from his father, or heard from his father, who heard from the Alter Rebbe himself, that every letter in Book 4 of the Tanya reflected a different communal and personal state of the Alter Rebbe in his life. So wherever he was holding in life, these letters came forth from within that, uh, that space. 
So unlike us, who are typing messages and WhatsApps and sending emails, and it's just, it's outside of us, for the Alter Rebbe, a man of God, everything that emerged from his pen was an extension or an expression of where he was holding in life at the time. And uh, I'm going to share with you something at the end that I think is incredible about as it concerns this letter, letter number one. The letter itself um, was written in two drafts. The first time, it was written over a period of maybe 10, 15 years. The second time, it was written in 1803, 1802 really, in the winter of 1802. Um, the Alter Rebbe sent it out to a number of communities pursuant to a letter he had sent a year earlier in 1801, which in the Tanya, it's funny, that letter is the last essay in the entire Tanya, in book five. So you can see how it's not chronological. There's a letter in 1801 that appears at the end of the Tanya, and the letter of 1802 is first. But anyway, in 1801, the Altar had asked that all communities take upon themselves to finish the entire Talmud each year. So not everyone is capable of learning the whole Talmud, but everyone can learn a piece. And if everyone learns a piece, and together you finish it collectively, it's considered as everybody learned the Torah, the whole entire Talmud. So he asked that everyone should split the Talmud. And he also asked that people should increase in their diligence in prayer. A year later, he's following up. And he begins the letter, he says, we open up with a blessing, because I heard great news that you guys fulfilled my wishes. You finished the entire Talmud in a number of communities. And so I want to write to you a letter to celebrate that. And essentially, the letter is an incredibly powerful insight into the essence of, of Torah study. And it also discusses at length the matter of prayer, which was the other issue that the Alter Rebbe had discussed the year before. So Torah study and prayer is where it's at. But I want to frame it... Um, in more of human terms, more relatable. Paraphrase a metaphor that the Alter Rebbe gives in the middle of the letter. When you learn Kabbalah, it comes up time and time again that the human psyche is divided into three parts. We speak of the human being in terms of Three categories. Our intelligence, our emotions, and our instincts. So forget what we do. We're not talking about the deed. We're talking about our makeup. Our makeup can be divided into intelligence, emotion, instinct. It's usually linked with body parts. The Zohar usually describes it as uh, the head, the heart and the liver. That's the word used in the Zohar, the Kaved. There's a whole discussion on why they use the liver. In this letter, the Alter Rebbe calls them the head, the torso, not the heart, he goes more general, the whole torso and the waist. Head, torso, waist, intelligence, emotion, instinct. 
And Hasidus explains that the physical image of the human body is a reflection of the hierarchy of these elements. In other words, we have intelligence, we have emotion, we have instinct. Which is higher? Which is primary? So if you look at the human body, we stand vertically. Our heads are above our hearts, which are in turn above our livers. Or to use this, these terms, our mind is above our torso, which is above our waist. That indicates the level of importance. Intelligence, the seat of human free will, the capacity to think objectively, the ability to make finer judgment calls, to appreciate nuance, to appreciate subtlety, to be deliberate. These are the highest of the human faculties. It's what makes us human. That ability to use the mind, to think out of the box, not to be limited to our subjective experience, that is the pinnacle of humanity. The next is the torso, or specifically the heart. That's our capacity to emote, to feel deeply, the power to love. But love in a real way. The power to be awed by beauty. The power to be overwhelmed with emotion. To, to give, to be kind, to be happy. Sophisticated emotions. That's in the heart. And that's considered a level lower, a step down from the mind because emotions are a product of the mind. We create feelings based on our perception of things. We learn to appreciate beauty which then washes over us in a wave of emotion. In, in Kabbalistic terms, this is called sechel and midot. The mind brings about the heart. The intelligence, the intellect, kindles feeling. So head above heart. And then, certain times, we have just instinctive responses that come from our subconscious. They don't come because we're thinking objectively or because we're feeling in a sophisticated way. These are things that are just part of our wiring. Knee-jerk reactions, fight or flight, that type of stuff. And they're not things that we can develop. They're not things that we can fine-tune. These are, these are just reflexes. So because we don't do anything about them, in this model, they're considered to be the lowest. The mind, the heart, the waist, in that order, because... Intelligence is the most complex, the most sophisticated, it's fully creative. The emotions follow from that, so they're a result, a byproduct, and then the instincts. By the way, as an aside, it doesn't say this in the letter, but this is also why animals walk hor horizontally. It says this in the Zohar. Humans are vertical, because by us, the head has prominence over the heart, over the instincts. You, uh, animals also have all three capacities. We see, we observe animals capable of intelligence, animals capable of feeling, and certainly animals capable of instincts. But they're all on the same line, which means that they disturb each other. Intelligence can't operate 
fully objectively. Animals don't have that power to reason in the ways that we do. Their emotions aren't that sophisticated. It's all governed by instinct in a certain way. So the human has that has an additional capacity of head, heart, and waist. But this is all one model. We go from top to bottom. But there's another context, another perspective, another prism, where it's the reverse. Where we could posit that actually instinct is above emotions, which is in turn above the mind. How so? So this says elsewhere in Kabbalah. Because instincts are instinctive, that means they're rooted in your deepest core. Because you can't do anything about it, because it's part of the wiring, it's connected to your essence. What comes out in a moment of reflex is an indication of what lies within your deepest self. Then when you have emotions, your heart, that's a level lower. You're feeling deeply. It's personal. Feelings have to be personal. You can't feel somebody else's feeling. You can only feel your own. Even when you have empathy, that's you going through it. but it's not the core. Therefore, it's a lower level. And the mind is considered the lowest because the mind can completely divorce itself from your consciousness. We have the ability to entertain ideas that are antithetical to our own values. You can sit and think about a concept that you completely disagree with. You can sit and contemplate an idea that would run against every fiber in your being. So if the mind is able to jump so far away from ourselves, it's the lowest. But isn't it also the receiver? It's this the differentiator, isn't it? There'd be no free will if it was all instinct. Of course. So the mind is free will. In that way, it's the highest. So it's, it's, it's two models. It's two models. One where the mind is above the heart and above the instinct, and the other where instinct is above the heart and above the mind. They're both true, right? And they're both true. That's the thing. They're not, they're not contradictory. Right. The way one of my Tanya teachers framed it, he said, what's more powerful? Fingers or a fist? So you can make the case for both. Yeah. Fingers are incredibly um, complex. There's so much dexterity to it. You can do so many wonderful things with the delicate touch of the fingers. Most creatures don't have you know, the split fingers. It's all webbed together. So fingers represent you know, incredible levels of sophistication. On the other hand, you want to deliver a punch. You, know, you want power. Power is in the fist. Over here. Fingers are more fragile. So is that contradictory? No, they're both true. If you're looking for finesse, if you're looking for depth, if you're looking for nuance, you go with the finger. If you're looking for raw, sheer power, fist. 
So in the same way, you go with both models. If you're talking about nuance, humanity, skill, well, there the mind comes, comes chief. The heart and then the instinct, which is really nothing. It's just, it's, it's your programming expressing itself. But if you want to talk about power, where is there extreme power? Extreme power is in the instinct. Extreme power is in what comes out of your deepest part of yourself. That's like the fist. So that's, that's the human metaphor. The Alter Rebbe then says, let's take all this and translate it into spiritual terms. Let's not talk about the physical mind, the physical heart, the physical waste. Let's talk about the spiritual mind, the spiritual heart, the spiritual instinct. What is the spiritual mind? The spiritual mind is the academic process that we use to sensitize ourselves in our relationship to God. The power that we have to think about ideas that inspire us about Hashem. And he chooses a couple of specific ones in this letter. Uh, God is present in every element of creation. God did incredible miracles for the Jewish people. God was extremely kind to us. He allowed us to become his chosen nation. He allowed us to touch himself through Torah and mitzvahs. You know, the, the Talmud says, it's better one moment of teshuva and good deeds in this world than the entire world to come. Really? The world to come is incredible. Basking in God's glory. I mean, really? One moment of this is better than that? How, how could it be? Hasidus explains that it's not a quantitative advantage, it's a qualitative one. Any experience we're going to have in the world to come is considered to be a ray of godliness, not his essence. When you do a mitzvah with a physical object, you touch the deepest essence of the divine. So better not in quantity, better in quality. We have an opportunity in this world that you don't have in any other realms to reach Hashem's essence. So that's the spiritual mind. What's the spiritual heart? The spiritual heart is the resulting emotions. What happens when you think about all these things? God is so great. He finds a way to filter himself into the whole world. God is so almighty. And yet he chose us, this little nation, gave us so much kindness and so much favors. Well, when someone does good to you, you do good to them back. It's natural. As water reflects a face, so does the heart of one person reflect to another. And you are, you are inspired uh, with a great amount of desire, a great amount of yearning to be close to this source of life that's giving you so much good. And you also are inspired with a tremendous amount of awe and respect for the relationship that you have with him. You don't want to violate it. So these love and fear, this closeness and respect are the spiritual heart that result from the academic process. And what is the spiritual instinct? The spiritual instinct that Alter Rebbe says is our faith. Simple, unadulterated faith. The mind is complex. It's ideas, it's process, it's information. Faith is simple. Faith is instinctive to every Jew, it's in our blood. So which is greater? You have the spiritual mind, spiritual heart, spiritual waste. 
thinking and contemplating about God, feeling, and then just believing. Well, it's in the same way as the two models of before, depends how you want to look at it. The Alter Rebbe says, faith, like the waist that holds up the entire body, faith is holding up the entire structure. There's nothing worse you can do to faith than to complicate it. Do not make faith complicated. Faith is simple. And it's the baseline of everything. Like the fist, it's sheer power. You You can't discount it. Faith has driven the Jewish people our most heroic moments. Jews went to their death with faith. Jews went to miracles with faith. Jews went through the hardest of times with faith. Nobody sat around and gave a class, you know, and twiddled their thumbs when it came time to the big, to the big stuff. The big stuff, we operated on faith. But, that's one perspective. The other side is faith won't last on its own. It's a famous illustration in the Talmud which says the thief prays to God at the entrance to his tunnel. He dug a tunnel. He's about to make his way into a home and rob the guy of all his valuables. But he stops and he says, Hashem, help me. You can't get more paradoxical than that. You're about, you're about to violate this, this God's will, and then you ask him for help. That's the nature of faith, the Talmud says. If you don't nurture it, if you don't feed it, if you don't make it real, you'll end up using it <laughs> down the wrong avenues. Right? So from that perspective, you need the mind. You need the mind. You need real study. You need real absorption, you said before, receiving ideas. You, you need that. Because that is going to guarantee the continuity of the faith. So while in the physical metaphor we just said both are true, depends on how you look at it, here we're saying both are actually intertwined. Faith is holding up the structure, but you can't have faith without the mind. You've got to have them both. And specifically, which part of Torah, which part of study, what must we learn? The Alter Rebbe says, Jewish law, the legal element of the Torah. Why? Because the legal element of the Torah also contains that paradox within itself. Pardon my expression, there's nothing more boring than Jewish law. You want to learn with a guy, you know, you want to learn with a lawyer, some good Torah, Get into the Talmud. There's theory, there's richness, there's beauty, there's discussion, there's back and forth. Get to Jewish law, all it is is just, it's just do this, don't do that, do this, and in this case, do this, and in the morning, do that. It's very boring. There's also a lot of mental thinking too in Torah. Of course. But in the, in the Jewish law area, in the legal area, it seems like just a code. But the truth is that that's where God's deepest will is present. Because... Information, discussion, conversation is beautiful. But what God wants is the practical religion. Judaism is in the details. So by learning Torah, 
specifically by learning Jewish law, the Alter Rebbe says, we don't just have a combination of the mind and the waist, we have what he calls the crown on top of the head. In other words, we have it all. Keter. We have it all. We have one model where the mind is above the heart, is above the instinct, the faith. We have the other model where faith is above the emotions, is above the, t- the heart. And then we have the fusion when we learn that part of Jewish law, which in itself encompasses both areas. Which is, which is halacha. And he links this whole discussion to a verse that we all say every Friday night in the Eish Chayel, that song for the woman, which is really a metaphor for the relationship of the Jewish people and God. One of the verses over there says, Be'oz Motneha. She, she girdles, girds her loins with strength. She girds her waist with, with strength. Every word there is exact. There is a waist, there are the loins, that's the faith. That's at the core of everything. But the faith needs to be bound with strength. What is strength? Torah. Ain oz ala Torah, the Talmud says. The word oz means Torah. So you got to have both. The faith is there, and then the waste, and then the, the strength, the Torah, fortifies it. The girding is the, the, girding is the Torah. Girding. Exactly. The girding is, is, getting, is nurturing the faith, let's call it. And that's the altar of his observation in honor of this completion of the Talmud. Everyone just completed the Torah. He says, understand the greatness of what you're doing. When you get down and dirty to the nitty gritty, to the, to the core of Jewish law, you're encompassing all of these models of physical humanity and spiritual service of God. You're being both the head and the waist, both the faith and the mind. And now, in the very end of the letter, the Alter Rebbe segues and says, when does all this come together? It all comes together in prayer. In prayer. We're going to see, by the way, many of these letters are about prayer because Hasidus is all about the human meeting God. And prayer is when we meet God every day. So prayer is the micro of that which we're trying to achieve with our life, which is to get closer to Hashem. So the Alter Rebbe says, the exercise that you got to do is the study of Torah. But what's going to get you in the mindset to appreciate everything that we're saying is the daily davening experience. Therefore, says the Alter Rebbe, please, please keep in mind the letter that I wrote to you last year, he says, about prayer. And especially keep in mind the idea of kavana, deep concentration when you daven. Because when you daven with concentration, pouring out your heart to Hashem, that's when you have the opportunity to focus on that which you have to do throughout the day. And here, Dalte Rebbe goes straight for the practical. And he says, I have the following new request. But it's really a guideline. He says, starting from the day you get this letter, do not allow businessmen who are pressed for time 
to lead the services. <laughs> Do not allow businessmen to be chazan. <laughs> You're hurrying off to work. Yeah, because what you should do is. Do you follow that? No. <laughs> <laughs> he says what you should do is, is get the people that have the time to daven. Doctor says for an hour and a half. Morning prayers should take an hour and a half. Get the guy who can daven for an hour and a half to lead. Around him, he should gather a minion of such people, and the businessmen should come and go as they need to. I got it. You only have a couple of minutes for chakras. Come in, come out. But don't, don't make the minion. The Rebbe later on would say that he takes, he takes the responsibility of a half an hour. So you only have to daven for an hour. Al said an hour and a half. He'll take on his shoulders the one, one half an hour. You got to keep it to an hour. However, on Shabbos, when businessmen have more time, they should be the chazan. Yeah, because during the week they can't dedicate the time. But on the Shabbos, you can let them go because now they have time to dedicate fully to Hashem. And then out there, was, and this is very unusual. He says, know this, I'm going to be sending spies, secret spies to the communities around where I live. And I'm going to see if people that have the capacity to daven for longer are being lazy. And if you are, he writes straight out, black and white, no mincing words. If you're lazy, when you come here to Liozna, where he lived, to hear Hasidus, you will be pushed away with two hands. Very harsh. Pushed away with two hands. And then Alter Rebbe concludes, infer positive from the negative. That if you do work on yourself in davening, if you do put in the work, then you'll definitely be, be allowed close. So it starts off with the value of faith. Faith leads everything. It moves to the fact that the mind must nurture the faith. And it culminates in a call for more focus and prayer. And I haven't heard this from any reliable source, but I have the following observation, and I'll close with this. In 1887, on Simchat Torah, the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, said the following. Letter number one that we just studied tonight, in its first version, was written over a period of a few years. The first part, where the Alter Rebbe extols the virtues of faith, was written right after he made the decision to go and travel to the Magad of Mizrich for the first time in 1764. He was a young man. When he first went to explore Hasidus for the first time, he had a bunch of disciples, and he left them this letter as a note of inspiration. A couple of months later, in the spring of 1765, when he returned from his first visit to the Magad, he wrote part two of the letter, which talks about the mind nurturing faith. And then, a couple of years later, after he had established himself and he had disciples that were all around the areas and building communities, is when he called for prayer. So now I'm thinking, this matches wonderfully 
with the pre-Chabad and post-Chabad models of Hasidism. Before the Alter Rebbe came around, faith was all the rage. All you had to do was simply believe. There'd be a tzaddik, he would inspire you, you go back home, and you keep doing your thing. The Alter Rebbe's whole mission was about carrying faith down to the intellect. The mind needs to nurture the faith. And that's why he wrote the second half of the letter after he came back. In that 1887 talk, the Rebbe Rashab said he wrote the second part of the letter after he had heard from the Magid who he really was. The Magid told the Alter Rebbe who his soul really was, what his mission in the world was, and the spiritual danger he would face in bringing it to fruition. So he wrote down this letter. And finally, because everything comes together in prayer, the last part of the letter was the call that we have to focus more on our davening. So it kind of follows the Alter Rebbe's own metamorphosis, let's call it, into what he would see as the future of the Chabad movement. And so that's the call to action. Learn more Torah and daven better. L'chaim. L'chaim.